our God is exalted. Amen? Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, Hannah is praying to the Lord after receiving some wonderful news that she is going to have a child. And she says this, she prays to God, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Church, our God is holy. Amen? Amen. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 8, Ezra gets up to speak. Ezra is speaking to the people after they have done what they went out to do. And he says this about God. He prays to God saying, God, you are righteous. Church, we have a righteous God. Amen? Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 32 Moses is getting up. He's giving his last speech to the people. And he says this. He says, the rock. That's what he's calling God. He says, the rock. His work is perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God, without deceit, just and upright is he. Church, our God is perfect. Amen? Amen. Psalm 145, David is praying. David is praying to the Lord as David does so often, and he says this. He says, worthy is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Church, our God is worthy. Amen? Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 3, the people have just built the temple and they're so excited about it. And they're praying to God, they're praising God, and they say of God, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Church, our God is good, amen? amen. Then in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, Jeremiah praying to the Lord, telling the people, he says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Church, we have a God who is eternal. Amen? Amen. Our God is exalted. Our God is holy. Our God is righteous and perfect and good and worthy. Amen? Humanity, on the other hand, is none of those things. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, Isaiah is speaking to the people and he says, Your iniquities have been barriers between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In Psalm 51, David is praying to the Lord after he's committed this egregious crime. And he says, indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. Do any of you look at yourselves and think, I just can't get this right. I am a sinner. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah is speaking to the people and he says to them, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We are not righteous at all. And on top of that, we're led by our minds and our hearts, and Jeremiah tells us that our heart is devious above all else. Who can understand it? 
In the New Testament, Paul is writing this letter to the Romans in Romans 3, and he says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And on top of all that, there is our very human nature. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. This is the reality that we are made from dirt. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 103 says, As for mortals, our days are like grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Our God is exalted on high. He is holy and righteous and perfect and good and worthy and eternal. And humans are full of iniquity, sinful, unrighteous, unholy, and mortal. There's this great distance between God and humans. And on top of that, there's the the distance between heaven and earth, right? In Isaiah 66, we learn, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Heaven is the place where God reigns. Earth, on the other hand, according to 1 John 5, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. There's this distance between heaven and earth that we experience every single day. And so the solution has been forever for man to try to reach God. That's this next slide. I've I've made this image, and just bear with me because it works in my head. But I made this image where humans on earth keep trying to reach for God in heaven, but we always come up short. Like if you've read Genesis 11, in Genesis 11, all the people on the earth gather together and there's a story of how they say, let's build this tower, the Tower of Babel, and they they build this tower that's going to reach into the heavens because they're going to be able to reach God. And once the tower gets to a certain point, God comes down and stops them. Makes it to where they can't communicate with each other. Michelangelo is the famous painter of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. If you've ever been there, it is a beautiful sight. One of the most uh, significant pieces of art in history. And on top, he's got this picture of God sitting on a cloud and man reaching up to touch him. Adam reaching up to touch him. That's, that's our story. Man seeking to reach God and heaven because we recognize our own brokenness. This is a little bit of a dark story, but in the 1940s, In the 1930s and 40s in Germany arose Hitler, who was seeking to create this superhuman race, trying to get past the limitations of who we are, seeking to become what God is. It's humans reaching for heaven, reaching for God. But no matter what we do, No matter how hard we reach, no matter how much work and effort and toil we put into it, we just never get there. We are incapable 
of reaching there. But the beauty of our story, the beauty of the story that we come together each week to celebrate is that we have a God who does not limit us, but a God who reaches out beyond these limits toward us. A God who pursues. You see, God has from the beginning sought to be with man. That has been his desire. He wants to be with us. We have a God who loves us. A God who does not want to be a distant God, but wants to be right here with us. We see this, and, and there's this intersection of the human and the divine, and it's always an act of God that does that. In the tabernacle, when Moses was commanded to build this tabernacle, and there was going to be the holy place and the most holy place. And in this most holy place, God was going to be present. Even before that, Moses goes up on a mountain and says, God, show me your glory. And God says, okay. We don't have a God who is hiding from us, but a God who comes to us. And of course, we see this most fully in Jesus himself, right? When in John chapter 1, uh, the passage that we've been looking at the last four or five weeks has been John chapter 1, where Jesus is the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. That word for dwelled among us isn't, isn't a great translation, but it's, what it means is Jesus came and he kind of just stayed with us. And it's the same word that you would use for the tabernacle. Jesus came and made a tabernacle among us. We have seen his glory, just like they saw the glory of God in the tabernacle. Jesus is the intersection between the humanity that we experience and the divinity of God. And I say all that to get us to this place. In our church, we believe that our mission is to develop disciples. We believe that the first mark of a disciple, one of the first things we see in disciples, is that disciples follow Christ into the water. And church, I want to make a case this morning for this simple truth. I believe that just like the tabernacle and just like Jesus, that baptism is a moment it is an intersection of the human and the divine. Over my lifetime, there have been a ton of controversies about baptism. We practice baptism. I grew up practicing baptism. We love baptism because baptism is great. We know that. We believe that. We've seen that. But controversy just is never far away when we talk about baptism. Like when we say things like the mode of baptism... When you're talking about the mode of baptism, how do you baptize someone? And then, but what if they can't do this? Or what if this and, and that just creates controversy and creates question? How many of you have ever heard of a thing called the age of accountability? Uh, yeah. A few of you, right? Yeah. That's a word that we kind of came up with and like. Age of accountability. And it creates all sorts of confusion, all sorts of controversy. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with Christians who have asked me, did I know enough when I was baptized for it to count? And the, the thought process is that if I don't know enough, then it didn't really take. 
that God wasn't really doing anything. There have been controversies about how decision is made to be baptized. Uh, there was a rule at the camp I was directing that if a kid was making a decision that was purely emotional, we would say no. And emotional versus reasoned, that was part of the decision-making process. I've had lots of conversations with people, particularly people outside of our tradition, that ask, does baptism save? Is it the moment of salvation? That has been a hot question. There's been questions about what is the relation of faith and baptism? We're saved by faith. What is the role of baptism? And then on top of that, we read like in Acts chapter 1, where John baptizes with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. What's the difference between those things? And we feel like we have to have a right answer, or, or we'll, if we're wrong, it doesn't work, or, or, or whatever the case may be. We, we feel like we have to answer all these controversies. We have to fix all of this confusion, and I just don't think that's what it's for. I think that in all of our concern about being right, we have lost what is beautiful about this practice. And baptism is beautiful because I act in baptism. If I decide to be baptized, I act in this, but so does God. It is where human and divine intersect. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Paul says this, he says, For those of you who have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. I chose to be baptized. I entered the water. But God clothed me with Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, we read, You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Church, as any disciple, I followed Christ into the water, but God raised me up. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Church, when we are baptized, we die, but God raises us up. I believe that baptism is a thin place. Baptism is a place where the human and the divine intersect. A place where the symbol and the reality that it's pointing to overlap. I think that is why baptism is so beautiful. Because the work that we're doing and the work of God come together. I was reading about this a lot this week. I've been thinking about this idea for a while, thinking about baptism, because it's one of the things that we value in this church. It's one of the things we point to. It's one of the practices that we will never give up. So I wanted to capture why I think it's beautiful, and I came across this quote from John Mark Hicks. 
And it says this. He says, baptism is a symbol by which we participate in the reality that it symbolizes. We must not reduce it to a mere symbol or sign that only looks to the past without any present power or reality. If we're just looking at baptism and saying baptism saves us because it remembers Jesus, that's wrong. Baptism is more important than that. Neither is baptism, however, the technical line between heaven and hell. We must not reduce baptism to a legal requirement because it is more important than that. Baptism points beyond itself, and we participate in God's transforming work. God is transforming us, but we get to play a part. God is at work through baptism. Church, we are going to continue to pursue and call and develop people who want to follow Jesus into the water. Again, this is our second, this is our first marker for what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. We believe in baptism. And for those of you who have been baptized, we want you to just continue to recognize how beautiful that moment is. For those of you who haven't, we want you to seriously consider following Christ into the water. It's a beautiful, significant step in the discipleship journey, and it's one that's available to you anytime. We are going to pray, and then I want to just tell you one minute about the Feed My Starving Children event. Father God, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the ways that your goodness and your love intersect with our humanity. God, and we believe that baptism is one of the most significant ways this happens. That baptism is a moment in which we work and you work and together we become a new humanity, a new people, a new creation. God, you are so good and merciful to us. We pray that you be with us. God, for the people that have not decided to follow Christ in this way, we pray that you will continue to work on them, that you will continue to prompt them to follow you in this way. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Here in just a moment, we're going to release uh, all of you to go to the Feed My Star.